who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. You are listening to the final episode of Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport adventure written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 38. Familiar Hurts. Her face hurt. She'd known the hurt many times before, but she thought she'd left it behind with her husband. She didn't need to touch her face to feel the bruising with her fingers. She knew it like a familiar friend. Just as well. She couldn't seem to move her arms. She blinked the one eye that would open. The other was either swollen shut or the lid was stuck together. She couldn't tell. Under her chin, she saw the familiar woolen blanket from her bed, but she wasn't in her bed. She was propped against a wall, rolled in the blankets and wrapped with a long piece of rope around the outside. She smelled horse and a pungent privy smell. A fire flickered somewhere just out of her sight, and she tried to muster the strength to turn her head to look. Witch. The word came from the darkness, and she remembered the face, the snarl, the name. Josh. Her words were blocked. Her mouth had trouble speaking around swollen lips and a wad of cloth. Her tongue rasped across the weave of the fabric. You ruined me. The words were low, harsh, each one discreet, each one freighted with meaning that she heard but didn't understand. Her eyes flickered, her brain rattled in her head from the beating, and she slowly regained her senses. Each new awareness triggered another stab of pain. She grunted around the gag. You ruined me. He loomed out of the darkness to stand in front of her. She smelled him then. He smelled bad. Not dirty. Bad. Not the smell of a man who hadn't bathed in weeks, although that reached her even through the blood clots in her nose. No. Vaguely rotten. The smell caught her throat, a smell that made her glad for the clots in her nose. She turned her head, but he stepped closer. You ruined me. You killed my friends. He knelt awkwardly in front of her. And now? You're going to pay for that. She knew she should be afraid, but her battered body knew the pain, knew it as something that might pass eventually. Knew the pain made her forget something important. She tried to find it. He slugged her. She fell forward. 
feeling something dig into the side of her thigh as she fell. You ruined me, and now I'm going to ruin you. Her mind cleared enough to remember that he'd surprised her in her bedroll, and she realized that he had just rolled her in her covers and taken her. Her stomach and ribs felt very much like she'd been slung over somebody's shoulder and carried. He grabbed her shoulder and slammed her back against the wall, rattling her head against the earth behind her. The shift in weight dug the stick into her thigh again. A stray, detached thought flashed through her rattled brain. Trust like a solstice goose, battered, being held prisoner by a man getting ready to kill her, and she focused on the fact that a stick chafed the outside of her thigh raw. The incongruity of it nearly made her laugh through the blood-soaked rag. She saw the blow coming but couldn't dodge it in time. It bounced her off the wall, back down into the well of unconsciousness. As the darkness filled her again, she said a prayer to the All-Mother for delivering her from the stick. Shouting woke her, and she shifted her weight on the limb. The men were making noises. No, not noises. The same noise, over and over. Different voices in different areas of the village. The sun was down, the moon was up, so the village was washed in silver light. She could see them moving about, calling. They were clustered around the house with rabbits. Would there be a rabbit tonight? There was something wrong, something she needed to do. Her belly was still full and the sky was cold, but she pushed off from the limb and her dark wings caught the breeze as she soared toward the house with rabbits and over the ridgepole. Meat. It wasn't there now, but it had been. Something reeking had been there, but was gone. That smell... She needed to follow it, find it. There would be food there. There would be... something. The wind caught the scent and she lost it, but she was patient and flew on silent wing, quartering the sky, sailing over the wide path where men rode back and forth, until she called in frustration. It was gone. A large pine on the edge of her territory offered shelter from the cold. She took roost near the trunk and let the thick needles and thicker wood protect her from the wind. She fluffed up her feathers and tucked down as best she could. There was meat here, somewhere. In daylight, maybe she could find it. Tanith woke. The raven was out there somewhere, but where? She turned her head and the room spun, but settled again. The dim light glowed from a fire that burned somewhere to her left. The cold, wet ground soaked through the blanket under her. She didn't see Josh. She tried to get her one good eye to focus, but it was too difficult to make out anything in the dim, shadowed light. She gave up and let her eye close, and her head sagged forward. Sleep took her, but the dreams and the pain kept waking her. Through it all, every shift in weight dug that stick into her leg. Eventually, the long night ended. Figures it's the longest night of the year. She grumbled, but the gag in her mouth turned it into an incomprehensible gargle. The movement and noise brought him out of the shadows. What's that, witch? You best not be casting more of your spells or you'll find out real fast. He still hid in the shadows, but the gray light of morning seeped in in places. Pale morning light filtered from above in small patches, overwhelming the ruddy glow from the coals, or perhaps a fire had gone out. She couldn't tell. He reached out with three filthy fingers and plucked the wad of cloth from her mouth, leaving her gasping for breath. Longest night of the year. Her voice croaked awkwardly from the stickiness in her mouth and the swelling in her lips. She didn't think she'd be able to drink even if he offered. Oh, you think that night was long, which you just wait until tonight. Oh, yes, just wait. 
He loomed out of the shadows then, his eyes glittering oddly, and he stuffed the wad back into her mouth, practically gagging her with it as he stuffed it deep in her throat. You ruined me, and I'm going to ruin you. See if I don't. His eyes dodged back and forth, looking at things she didn't see. As he crouched there in the shadows, the pale morning light showed her that he was totally mad. Enough of her own wit returned to make her very afraid. Outside in the dawning light, she heard a raven call three times. A territorial warning call, but she couldn't tell what direction or even how far away. She hoped Thomas would be able to pick up the track. A familiar pounding sound came from outside. It carried the jingle of harness with it, and she recognized the sound of one of the king's own messengers galloping along the pike. The muffled sounds came from some distance, but that she heard it at all told her the road ran near her cave. Somewhere close, a horse wickered, and Josh's head snapped at the sound. He half-crawled, half-walked around her and disappeared. She felt, rather than heard, the stamp of a horse's hoof. She thought she heard a low voice, but when she held her breath to listen, it was gone. Her shifting in the night had loosened the bindings a little. She shifted again, trying to get some circulation back in her hips. The stick dug into her leg again, and she couldn't imagine what in the world he'd managed to bind up with her. She slithered her arms down from where they were crossed above her chest, which released some of the pressure on her lungs. She was able to get a breath, even around the obstructions in her mouth and nose. She worked her hand down to her thigh to push the stick away. She shifted her weight back and forth again to get more room in the tightly wound blanket. As she did, her hand finally found the object that had been digging into her. Her fingers wrapped around the hilt of her belt knife. He would be back soon. The gray light of dawn brightened, and it looked for all the world like she lay in a very low-ceilinged cave. There was something odd about it, but she couldn't place it. It would come to her. She released the hilt of her knife, repositioning it so it lay more comfortably along her leg, and left her fingers resting on the crossguard. She just needed to rest and to think. The damp cold was beginning to leach away her body heat as it soaked the blankets under her. She closed her eye and offered a silent prayer. Guardian of the North, bone of the earth, loan me your strength that I might survive. Exhaustion and cold conspired to push her back down into the darkness. She crooned into the morning from her hiding place in the tall pine. The meat smell had not come back, but she watched the man with the bow. He killed rabbits and grouse and sometimes left the entrails where she could find them. Maybe he'd find a rabbit. She had seen him moving out of the house with rabbits. He came out the back door and watched the ground and entered the forest, which interested her. He was on the trail of something. Perhaps it was the meat. The track turned and he went out onto the wide path and stood there in the middle of the packed surface. He looked up and down the path. She sidled sideways along the limb to watch him around the tree. Perhaps it would be a grouse. No. She needed to find something. The woman with the food would feed her, but where was she? The man in the path turned away from the village and walked quickly along. She watched his head turning back and forth, back and forth, as he looked for something. She needed to find something, too. The sun was coming up, and maybe the meat smell would come back. She dropped off the limb and sailed quietly through the forest fetching up on limbs now and again to see if he'd kill a rabbit. The apple tree was here, and she stopped to peck at some of the half-frozen apples on the ground. Food, but not as good as meat. She could hear the man walking away along the path. She ate a few more apples, but needed water. Her strong legs pushed her into the air, and three heavy beats of her wings gave her speed enough to glide between the tree trunks. 
She gained a bit of altitude and came to the large fallen tree that had the tasty rose hips. She scented man and flared away. His horse flicked an ear as she passed over and stomped his heavy hoof. She fetched up on a branch and looked. A horse met grain sometimes, and grain was tasty. She eyed the horse but didn't see the man. She smelled him. He smelled like meat, but she couldn't see him. His scent rode the morning air, but try as she might, she couldn't see him. That made her uneasy. A man she couldn't see was not a good thing. She launched again and winged to the pond for water. Tanith woke with a start and knew where she was and why the cave looked odd. She was under the tree. She couldn't believe she was so close to the village, and yet unless they found her soon it wouldn't matter. She could feel herself fading. Too much was broken, and she was cold, even in the blanket, so cold. She wondered where Josh had gone and turned her head to find his mad eyes inches from hers. Are you awake now, witch? He'll never find you, you know. Oh, no. He chortled and drooled a little. He lifted his hand and she flinched, but he laughed and bit into the apple he held in it. He smiled at her and the effect should have terrified her, but her fingers caressed the knife under her hand. He'd have to untie her if he planned to do much of anything besides beat her about the face. When he did, she'd be ready. He saw the change in her face. He stared at her. No, you're not going to die yet. No. His denial came out low and insistent. Oh, no, not after you ruined me. I have to ruin you before you can die. You'll be glad to die when I'm done with you, but not yet. No. His eyes scanned her face. She smiled. She started to shiver, but her muscles lacked the strength. In her mind, she formed another prayer. Guardian of the East, breath of the earth. Loan me your quickness that I may survive until I can once more breathe the gentle air of spring. The prayer gave her strength, but his punch to the side of her head overwhelmed her, and she fell into unconsciousness once more. She poked her bill into the thin ice and got her drink. She needed to help. She needed to do something. She launched. Up, up she flew and arrowed between the trunks. There would be meat in the end, and she could feast, but first she needed to find the man with a hat. The man she'd seen before, she needed to find him, the man in the snow. She broke into the village clearing and caught her frustration. Nobody stirred, not a man, not a child. She wheeled in the sky and looked down, but nothing moved. She flew through the woods, fast between the trunks and over the brush. The horse stood there beside the tree, and she smelled the meat and the smoke. She smelled the man and the woman who fed her, too. She picked the faint scent out of the background smells as she skimmed along the length of the fallen tree. She smelled the people. She smelled the meat. She smelled the blood. Her call echoed through the forest, and she banked sharply to fly back to the village to find the man with the hat. The cold, hard ground beneath her battered face pulled Tanith back to consciousness. The now sodden blankets leached more of her body heat away. Guardian of the South, fire of the earth, warm me against this chill of winter, fill my heart with fire. The prayer echoed through her brain even before she tried to open her eyes. He was still there. She could hear him, smell him. It's almost time, witch, he giggled. What part do you want to lose, eh? Shall I cut off your tits? He spat on her. You're too old already for men to look at you, but you'll see. You'll know, won't you, witch? She looked at him, unable to muster enough strength to hate him, saving her energy against the cold, saving her strength. When he unwrapped her, she'd be ready. He pulled back his fist and took aim at her bruised face, and she flinched, but he drove it into her gut, forcing the wind from her lungs, driving her back into unconsciousness as he laughed. Surprised you with that one, didn't I? She heard him, 
even as she fell. Her wings bit the cold air, and she streaked upwards to clear the trees. She needed speed, and speed meant open sky. She went up and then rolled at the treetops to drive for the buildings. As she came over the last line of trees, she saw a man walking to the big building with no walls. But it was the wrong man. He didn't look up even as her car split the morning sky. She flew beyond and over to the building with horses. Yes, she found grain sometimes, but the man with the hat cared for the horses. Perhaps she could find him there. Big doors blocked the way so she couldn't see in. She screamed her rage. The woman needed help. She banked hard and streaked back through the treetops to the village, saw only the man who wouldn't look up. Her lungs burned and her wings ached from the extended flight. She perched on the house that sometimes had rabbits. The house had no rabbit, and the woman who fed her hid under a fallen tree, and the meat hid there with her. She cawed and cawed again. Her anger and her hunger drove her. Something else drove her, too, and she cawed some more. She paced up and down the ridge of the roof and heard a sound under her talons, sound from inside the house that sometimes had rabbits. The door opened, and the man that came out was the right man, the man she'd seen before in the snow. He wasn't wearing the hat, but it was the man, and she cawed. He made the sound, the sound all the men made before, but he didn't shout it. She launched for the woods, darting between the bowls, heading for the tree with the rose hips, the tree where the horse was, the tree with the meat under it, the tree where the woman who sometimes fed her lay dying. Cold dirt against her face brought her back up once more. She struggled to push herself upright. She didn't really want to sit up, but she was lying on her knife arm, and she needed to free that arm before she lost feeling in it, before she lost any more strength. She lacked the strength to pull herself up without using her hand to push, and so just rocked slightly. She panted against the dirt. Guardian of the West, blood of the earth, give me the strength of the river to wash over the pain. He grabbed her shoulder and rolled her over, slamming her head against the packed earth of the floor. His dagger glittered in the faint light of morning. It flashed down at her, but only cut the cords holding the blankets tight around her. I think it's time. He giggled and a line of spittle drooled off his lips. Let's see what part of you you want to lose. He poised the tip of his dagger over her one clear eye. Maybe I'll just take an eye to start. He grabbed her nose with his free hand and gave it a wrench, breaking the clots and opening the passages to air again. Maybe the nose, eh? If I take your nose now, how will you smell, old woman, eh? He paused, the cold steel glittering over her right nostril. Just as bad as ever, he chortled at his old own joke. From outside, the calling of a raven echoed through the wood, and the man's head jerked around. He froze for a moment. The caw repeated, becoming more insistent. He swore and released her nose. Cursed bird! He spat on the ground and turned back to Tanith. Don't go away, little mother. We've got business yet. His boot lashed out, clipping her on the jaw. Her head rang from the blow as she slipped away once more. The man ran behind her. He wore no hat, but he shouted something after her. She didn't stop, but kept going. She shouted back to him, her calls bouncing from the tree trunks as she flew. In moments, she was back at the tree and fetched up on a limb. The meat was there. She could smell it now. She called again. The man's shouts were faint in the distance, but getting louder. He made the sound again, the sound they'd all made. She called several times, and the horse rolled his eyes and swished his tail. But he looked bad, too. Maybe the horse would be meat soon, and she'd feast. But first the woman needed help. So she cawed. The shouts got closer, and the meat crawled out from a hole under the tree. He waved his arms at her. He made whooshing sounds at her. He picked up a stick and threw it at her. She dropped off the limb and dodged the stick, circled around. He picked up another stick and waved it at her. 
She cawed loudly and stooped. Her talons raked his face and he dropped his stick, clutching the bleeding wounds. The meat smell maddened her and his hot blood warmed her toes. She flapped around and came in again, cawing and striking with her wings. She slashed with her talons once more and his flailing arms swatted her roughly. She screamed and grabbed his face with both feet, holding on and pecking at his face, his head, his hair. His heavy hands struck at her, but she bit his fingers and drew strips of flesh from his hands. His screams were as loud as hers, but he was pounding her and she had to let go. She released him, and one last clumsy strike of his arm tossed her heavily against the bowl of a tree, stunning her. She fell to the ground. He loomed over her, moving quickly, to reach for her even as she floundered in the snow to get her feet under her. If his hands found her, she'd die. Her wings flapped snow into his face as she tried to escape. She banged against a tree as he reached again, and she cawed her defiance into his stinking face, even as he bent to grab her. He screamed back at her and fell heavily to his side, clutching at his leg, even as a strong arm grabbed his shoulder and dragged him onto his back in the snow. The woman who fed her was there in the snow. Her face was a snarl. She heaved herself up from the ground with the arm that held him pinned, even as she raised her knife high in the air and plunged it down into his shock-filled eye staking his head to the frozen ground with a peg of sharpened steel. Tannis' vision was oddly split, seeing half with her eyes and half with the eyes of the raven across from her. She panted and fell heavily across the stinking body, but watched as the raven found her feet and launched herself up over the fallen tree, flaring her wings to take refuge in a small spruce. Their hearts pounded in their chests. Their bodies still rang from the blows, she had some feathers that were damaged, and she did what she could to preen them into shape. The meat man's blood was in her talons and a strip of his flesh. She ate it, cleaning her talons of the gore, but wondered if there would be a rabbit later. They watched Frank come thrashing through the trees and take in the scene with wild eyes and a shocked expression. Tanith looked up to him, with her one good eye, her head turned at an awkward angle. In the name of the All-Mother and the All-Father, would you please get me off this stinking corpse? Her strength failed her one last time. She never felt the ground slap her in the face. Chapter 39 Raven Dreams In her dream, she woke. She knew it was a dream this time. Her fingers were feathers and her arms were wings. Her nose was long and she had to turn her head from left to right to see with one eye and then the other. It was an odd feeling, but she laughed, and it bubbled up out of her like a raven's croon. In her dream, she sailed the blue, blue sky and saw the earth below, spooling out like a river flowing beneath her strong black wings. She called, but her voice was silent. It didn't ring in the morning air, just a dream she knew, but still it was her dream, and her voice should sound. She opened her mouth to call again. Hey. Her own voice woke her. It didn't ring out, but it was her voice faint and breathy but her own. She opened her eyes and looked up at the rafters. The house with rabbits. Amber's face moved into her line of sight. There, Mom, you're safe now. The words echoed oddly, but she was able to understand. She didn't feel safe. The house with rabbits. She looked at Amber's face. Amber looked terrible. Her eyes were puffy and her nose was red. Rabbits, Mom. Amber frowned curiously. The darkness called Tanith back, and pain pulled her, but she smiled and tried to speak clearly through her swollen lips. A house with rabbits. Rabbits. She saw Amber's expression change from curiosity to alarm. A house with rabbits. 
She bit her lower lip. There are no rabbits here, Mum. Tana sighed and fought the darkness once more. Get some. Tell Thomas. She couldn't fight it anymore and let the darkness call her back. In her dream, she stood in the bow of a ship, and it was like flying. The wind blew through her hair, and she had to leave her hat and staff below. The morning sun warmed the right side of her body, even as the icy wind stuck daggers of cold through her clothing. But she threw back her head and laughed. Above her, the taut triangles of sail gleamed whitely against the deep azure sky of spring. She looked ahead once more, north, and saw the smudge of land on the horizon. A voice behind her said, Mom, you shouldn't be on deck in this cold, Mom. Mom? She turned to face the sailor, but opened her eyes to Sadie's concerned gaze. Mom, you need to swallow some willow bark tea, Mom. She held up a mug into view. Do you think you can drink? Tanith felt the knives of fever and rejoiced. Yes. With the help of Sadie's strong arms, she lifted enough to sip the cup that Sadie held to her lips. It tasted awful. The bitterness puckered her tongue, but it felt like the swelling in her mouth was going down. She drank as much as she could and then pulled her head back to breathe. Tell Thomas, the house with rabbits. She leaned back into the mug and finished the bitter draft even before Sadie laid her back down, pulling the warm covers up to her chin, even as the fever's trembling started pulling her strength. She closed her eyes and started the slow slide down. Amber's voice came from the hearth. Is she still talking about rabbits? Sadie's voice answered with a sigh. Yes. Something about the house with rabbits and tell Thomas. Tanith heard Amber sigh before the darkness pulled her down once more, and for once, her sleep was dreamless. The smell of rabbit stew woke her. She blinked her eyes open to see the late afternoon light. Thank you, Mother. It was less a prayer than a whisper, but it got an instant response. She's awake again. It was Sadie's voice. She turned to see Sadie rise from the table even as Megan poured hot water into the teapot. How are you doing, Mum? Tana smiled tentatively. I seem to be alive. I'm counting that on the plus side. She saw Sadie's face relax. Oh, Mum, welcome back. Her voice was filled with relief, and she beamed a smile at Megan. She picked up a mug and crossed to the cot. Here's some water, Mum. You must be thirsty. She nodded gratefully and was even well enough to sit up mostly on her own. Sadie held a mug for her, and she sipped at it, moistening her lips and tongue resting, then doing it again. At the touch of water, her body almost betrayed her and tried to gulp it down, but she resisted and sipped. There'd be more. Thank you, Sadie. She smiled up at her. Is that rabbit stew I smell? A worried frown creased Sadie's face. Yes, Mum. Rabbit. Good. Did you feed some to the raven? The raven, Mum? Yes, the raven. She likes rabbits to eat. Dead ones, of course. Sadie's face turned from concern to alarm, and she looked to Megan, who rushed over to the cot. You mustn't concern yourself with that, Mum. Megan's voice was soft and soothing, and her hands fluttered helplessly at the top of the blankets, pulling them up, tucking them in, patting them down. You need to get well. Tanith looked from one concerned face to the other and frowned in concentration. Listen to me, ladies, this is important. I'm not mad, at least I don't think so, and I'm not raving. She took a breath to see them look at her with matching, startled expressions. Well, perhaps a bit. She paused to smile at them. There is a raven that lives in the big spruce tree west of the village. That raven saved my life. She likes to eat rabbits. I owe her a few. If you would ask Thomas to take a winter hare and leave the carcass on the grass behind my house, don't dress it. 
just the dead rabbit. She looked from one face to another. Think of it as an offering to the All-Mother, if that helps. They shared a quick glance before Sadie turned back to her. Shall we leave it in the snow, Mum? Is there snow? Tanith was surprised. When did it snow? Two days ago, Mum. The day after solstice. The afternoon of the day we found you. Tanith grunted in surprise. I thought you just found me this morning. The two women shook their heads. No, Mum. You've been lying there sleeping off and on for a couple days now. She paused uncertainly. Every once in a while you'd wake up and tell us about rabbits and then go back to sleep. Tanith barked a laugh, but pain chopped it off. There was still too much left to heal to be laughing loudly, and you thought I'd gone mad. The look they shared was painted with guilt, and she laughed again, if more gently. I'm fine, my dears. She paused. At least I think so. She looked back and forth between them. Yes, on the snow is fine, and just one rabbit. Think of it as an offering to the All-Mother. Just tell Thomas. They shared a dubious glance, but nodded to her. Where's Frank? Sadie cocked her head at Tanith. Frank's probably working on the inn. He stopped by every day to find out how you're doing, but we won't let him in. Why not? Sadie covered her mouth with both hands to stifle a laugh, and Megan looked horrified. Oh, gods, Mom, that wouldn't be quite proper now, would it? Man like that visiting a woman while she's bedridden? Sadie was shaking with suppressed laughter. She got it under control at Meg's sharp look. Besides, Mom, you'll want to get cleaned up a bit before he comes to call. Brush your hair, wash your face. She grinned slyly. You'll not want him to see you like that. Tanith snickered. I don't think the condition of my hair will be anywhere near as shocking as the bruises on my face, do you? Sadie gave a little shrug but nodded in acknowledgement. Probably true, Mum. You do look a little worse for wear. Tanith smiled and gave a small nod of acknowledgement of her own. I'm sure, but I'd like to thank him for dragging me out of that hole. She looked back and forth between them. Next time he comes, please let him in. They both nodded, Megan somewhat reluctantly. Well, at least let us clean you up a bit, Mum. Oh, yes, that would be lovely. Please? For half an hour they fussed over her, washing her face and hands with hot water, lavender soap, and a soft cloth. They even took a brush to her hair. All the activity reminded Tanith of the small tins on the mental board, and she had Sadie and Megan each take one. I'm a little late, but happy solstice, and may the new year bring you your heart's desire. They smiled and accepted the small gifts. Happy New Year, Mom, and thank you. All the activity caught up with her at once. She closed her eyes for just a moment, but inadvertently dropped off to sleep. At the top of her tree, she basked in the final rays of winter sunshine. The golden sun warmed her feathers even as the village below sank into the spreading shadows of the tree line. She'd need food soon, and regretted not feeding on the meat before the men had dragged it off and buried it. She caught in frustration. It didn't do any good for her hunger, but she let the others know she was still there. It was still her territory. The pair to the south answered her, but it was more acknowledgement than challenge. With the snowy season just starting, they'd all need to conserve energy against the cold and the dark. The man with the bow came out of the woods across the wide path and trudged up the snowy track toward the village. She leaned forward with interest. The day was drawing to a close, but sometimes he left rabbits. Maybe he'd leave another. The door to the house with rabbits opened, and she became more excited. But it wasn't the woman who fed her who came out, it was the woman who chased her from the corn. She sulked back into the branch and crooned. She was hungry, would have to go find some rose hips or dig for the apples under the snow. She watched as the woman and man talked. They looked up at her tree, which startled her, and she froze in place. It wasn't good to be looked at. 
Still, it made her curious, and she tilted her head left and right as the man reached into his bag and pulled out a rabbit. He handed the rabbit to the woman before continuing up the path, glancing up at the tree as he walked. The woman took the rabbit inside, and she cawed her frustration. No rabbit. She launched from the tree and swooped down into the shadows of the village, heading for the bush with rose hips. They weren't rabbit, but they filled her. Movement at the back of the door of the house with rabbits caught her attention, and the reddish light shined out onto the snow for a moment. It was long enough for her to see the woman step out and lay the rabbit on the snow before quickly stepping back inside and closing the door. She flared upwards in a banking turn to grab a limb and look back. Nobody stirred. The shadows of evening crept across the wide path and into the trees on the other side. The rabbit laid there in the snow. She cawed and stooped. The flesh warmed her as she feasted there in the snow. Tana's strength returned quickly once she was warmed and fed. Within a few days, she banished her nurses back to their own homes. Sadie left with a knowing smile and a cheeky wink. Woodbox needs tendon, eh, Mom? Tanith gave her a shrug, a hug, and a sly grin of her own. Takes a lot of wood to keep old bones warm in the winter, my dear. Sadie giggled. You be careful of splinters. Tanith blushed a little, but shooed her out. Around sunset, Frank showed up at her door with an armload of firewood, some venison chops, and a jug of sweet cider. Thought you might like something other than rabbit for dinner. Well, don't stand on ceremony, man. Get in here. She smiled at him. He dropped the firewood in the box and turned to her. They stood awkwardly for a few moments, and she saw his eyes tracing the bruises. She knew several shockingly purple splotches still marked her face, but at least the swelling had subsided, and she could see out of both of her eyes again, even if one had a pretty serious shiner. Still, this examination made her self-conscious. Mother, I must be a sight. His eyes stopped their tracing and centered on her face. You certainly are. One I'm glad to see. She went to him and took the cider and meat from his hands, placing them on the table. Then give me a hug, gently. She nuzzled up to his chest and put her arms around him. I'm still a little sore. He did, and they stood there for a time. Finally he spoke. I was so scared. We had no idea where you'd gone, but... He paused. You know, if you wanted to skip the solstice prayer, you could have just said so. She pulled back and looked up at him, confused. You didn't have to go running off in the woods with another man. His eyes twinkled and his lips twitched with his barely controlled grin. It caught her by such surprise that she barked a laugh into his chest and smacked him playfully on the shoulder. You beast! He hugged her gently once more and she snuggled into him, smelling him, savoring his warmth for a few moments before pushing him away. Okay, enough of that. I'm hungry. As the venison cooked, they pulled up their chairs side by side on the hearthstone and let the wind blow through the eaves while they were snug, warm, and together inside. Chapter 40. New Beginnings By the new moon, they'd closed the walls and with the extra shelter that afforded, they started keeping a fire burning in the hearth all the time to keep the chimney warmed. The extra heat permitted them to begin laying firebrick for a real oven, and by the end of the month of the ice moon, Sadie and Amber did much of their cooking at the inn. Tanith watched it all with a certain fascination, but her time was taken up with the tasks of her own, and the days took on an easy pattern. She started the morning with breakfast, occasionally shared with Frank, much to the amusement of Sadie and Amber, who seemed inordinately pleased with themselves on the issue. After breakfast, she helped Sadie and Amber with the daily bread-making. She was an expert at flat, unleavened breads, camp bread that could be mixed and cooked over a campfire. But Sadie and Amber were talented bread makers. 
Tanith admired their skill with flour and water, salt, and yeast. They frequently worked together to set the dough for as many as a dozen loaves a day. The amount of flour they used was shocking to Tanith when she first saw them working, but she soon realized that the two women provided much of the bread for the village. Watching Sadie and Amber wrestle with dough made Tanith realize why Sadie's lifting of her cot seemed so easy for her. Both of them had developed tight bands of muscle from years of mixing and kneading the bread. At mid-morning, while the bread rested in its first proof, they'd adjourned to Tanith's hut to work on herbs. In spite of the difficulties in the fall, Tanith had harvested considerable amounts of bark, leaf, plant, root, and berry. Over the course of winter's coldest weeks, she taught them how to make tinctures, teas, and tisanes to preserve and extract the various medicinal compounds. In the week leading up to Cradle Moon, she taught them how to make balms and ointments, letting them practice with beeswax and oil to find the consistency they needed, and showed them how to make the little tins of bombs she'd given for solstice gifts. In the afternoons, after feeding children and menfolk, they'd return to bread-making, setting a second proof of individual loaves while they tended to sewing, knitting, or mending. Children didn't stop growing in winter, so there was always somebody who needed something. Often Charlotte and Bethany would join them to ply needle and thread, hook and yarn, while the bread rose, and then baked. Evenings gave more variety— some nights Tana spent with Amber or Sadie, often both families at once. She even guested with Charlotte and Jakey a few times. The bluff and often blustery quarryman turned out to have a wickedly dry sense of humor when away from his crew and closeted in the privacy of his own hearth. Through it all, Frank stood by her, lending his gentle humor and strong arm when she needed it, holding her quietly in the night when the nightmares came. The cycle of the year ratcheted onward, and work on the inn progressed under the raven's watchful eye. Two or three times a week, Thomas took an extra hare and dropped it at the foot of her tree behind the village. As the weather turned warmer and the trees began to quicken, the raven took to walking along the inn's roof and commenting, sometimes loudly, on the progress of the work. By cradle moon, the inn was done except for a sign to hang in front. New grasses pressed up through browned mats of old growth, and snow remained only in the deepest shadows of the forest. On the night of the full moon, the village decided to throw a party. It was too early for the real equinox celebration, but with the completion of major construction and the reopening of the quarry at hand, a party was inevitable. As afternoon's labor wore down, they congregated around the fireplace in the common room at the inn, and for the first time, Tanith entered through the main door. Squared-off logs formed a set of steps in the front of the building, and a pair of barn-hinged doors hung in the extra-wide opening in the front. Jake and Ethan had installed a spit in the main hearth in the common room, and a trio of winter turkeys turned slowly over the coals by the time Tanith arrived. William and Thomas tended the spit, and she could hear Sadie, Amber, and Charlotte in the kitchen. The place smelled divine, with a sense of roasting fowl and baking bread melding with the wood smoke and fresh-cut wood. Mother Fairport, come sit by the fire. William patted the seat in one of the new chairs. She nodded her thanks and joined the two men in front of the hearth. She felt like she'd no sooner got seated when her friends and neighbors started filling the room. Frank came out of the kitchen with an X-legged contraption and set it next to the fire. Thomas's eyes lighted up at the sight. Frank disappeared back into the kitchen. He soon returned with a heavy cask, a spigot already set into the head. He placed it gently on the cradle with the spigot out and proceeded to fill and distribute mugs of sweet honey mead, drawing each one carefully and handing them around the room to the adults. Thomas added some mead to the sauce he was brushing onto the turkeys, and the drippings flaring in the fire took on a new and delicious aroma. As the sun finally set and the moon rose over the trees, they opened the doors to toast the moon, and the gleaming light seemed to shine straight in, adding a strand of silver to the gold of the hearth. 
Lanterns transplanted from the old workroom in the barn provided ample illumination in the gathering dark, and the fire yielded splints to light them with. Within an hour, they'd set the table and food started coming out of the kitchen. Amber, Sadie, Megan, and Bethany all brought out baskets of bread, huge bowls of baked beans, and even a large bowl of roasted groundnuts. There were smaller bowls of pickles and even several pots of applesauce flavored with mint. William and Jakey put on padded gloves, lifted the heavy spit off the brackets in the fireplace, and slid the three large birds onto separate platters on the table. With that, the feast stood ready, and they all gathered round the table to revel in the food, the company, and the knowledge that the back of winter was broken. Tannis sat back a bit from the celebrations, although she certainly ate heartily. Frank noticed and leaned in so he could speak to her softly. Are you all right? She looked over at the concern in his face and patted his arm. Yes, dear man, I'm fine. This is a marvelous accomplishment. I'm just feeling a bit tired. She smiled encouragingly at him. He frowned at her under lowered brows. You're sure? Yes, I'm sure. It's just... She paused and turned back to look him in the eye. It's just that my time here is coming to an end, I think. She saw the cloud descend across his face, and he sighed. I wondered. He looked at where her hand rested on his forearm, and he reached with his free hand to pat it. He looked back at her. Can I get you anything? A cup of tea? Some more mead? Oh, thank you. A cup of tea would be lovely. He returned shortly with mugs and a teapot, and the two of them sat together and enjoyed their own company while the party roared on around them. Two hours into the feast, Jakey rose and wrapped the table with the pommel of his knife. When everybody calmed down, he picked up his mug and turned to the crowd. I got some things to say. He grinned at the returning catcalls and waited for them to die down. First, he turned to Tanith at the end of the table. Thank you, Mother Fairport, for a grand idea. I think this will make a huge difference. He waved his hand to indicate the building. The assembled company cheered and applauded quite respectably. Second, he paused and looked around at the quarrymen. You lot have work in the morning. We'll be opening up the quarry again to get our first shipment of the season out, so don't drink too much tonight and I'll see your worthless carcasses on the trail at sunup. They all laughed. When they stopped laughing, he held up his mug in an honest toast. Third, to Kurt. He was a good man. We'll miss him. They all stood and raised whatever mug or cup they had. To Kurt. They drank deeply and somberly regained their seats. Charlotte turned to her husband with a bit of a slur, whispered loudly, You sure know how to end a party, honey. The assembly burst into laughter once more but in the space of half an hour they'd cleared the tables and ferried the dishes to the sink in the kitchen for cleanup. In half an hour more, many hands had helped to clean, dry, and stack them in the kitchen, ready for the morning. With the cleanup done, Tanith tightened her wrap about her and headed once more to the fire in the great room to warm herself. William stood there, banking the hot coals and adding a few odd knots to the pile to keep the fire warm overnight. He smiled at her as she came out of the kitchen and crossed to the fireplace. Thank you, Mum. For what, William? He smiled down at her. For believing in us. He cast his eyes around the room. We'd have been trying to make a kiln or something if not for this. He took a deep breath of the wood-scented air and smiled at her once more. This is a better choice. She smiled and patted him on the arm. You would have made it without me, I'm sure. William shook his head. I don't know, Mom. Maybe would, maybe wouldn't. But the point is you made this happen as much as any of us. She gave a small, embarrassed shrug and cast her eyes down. She saw the coloration then for the first time. The hearthstone was a different color from the rest of the fireplace. 
She stared at it as her mind worked to make sense of what she was seeing. She cast her eyes back and forth across the stone and spotted a small, perfectly shaped star. This is... She couldn't finish. William's eyes gleamed in the faint light from the coals. Yes, Mum. This is the hearthstone from the workroom. We all thought it deserved to be here. But it's stained. She knew it sounded inane but couldn't stop herself. No, Mum. William smiled back at her. It's been blessed. Tana stood in mute shock until Frank came out of the kitchen and offered his arm to her. Shall we go? With one last wondering look at Thomas and a glance at the small black stain on the stone, she nodded and looked up at Frank. Yes, please. The rest of the villagers went their separate ways while Frank walked Tanith home by the light of the moon. The air was far from warm, but the smell of spring was on the breeze. The quickening life fairly thrummed in the night air. Frank glanced down at her. Looks like the inn is a big success. She looked up. Looks like. We'll see if people start staying here. It's a little early to say, but it certainly came out nice. She smiled. He looked away from her, ostensibly at their path. So you're planning on going north? Yes. I need to find out about the Raven Visions if I can. Right now, Mother Pinecrest is the only clue I have. She rested her head on his shoulder as they walked. You're welcome to stay here, you know. He swallowed. The village would welcome having you stay. She looked up at him. He looked back at her. I'd like it if you stayed. She sighed and looked down. I can't stay, Frank. I need to find out what's happening to me. He echoed her sigh. Yeah, I figured. They walked the last few feet in silence. He held the door open for her and handed her over the threshold. She stopped at the foot of the stairs and turned back to him in surprise. You're not staying. He leaned over and looked in. Are you sure you want me to? She saw the hurt in his eyes, even as she read the understanding behind it. Why wouldn't I? He looked down at the ground and shrugged. Well, you'll be leaving soon. He cleared his throat. I just thought maybe you'd want to... He paused and looked up at her. Stop. She reached up her hand for his and smiled gently. We have some time left, Frank. We don't ever really know how much, do we? She grinned mischievously. Except folks our age don't have a lot of it to squander by letting it slip by unmarked, now do we? He smiled, took her hand, and let her draw him into the house. Thanks for listening to Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport adventure. Thanks go out to Ivan Chu for his wonderful music, to Evo Terra and the crew at Patio Books for the ability to bring these works to you, and to all of you for taking the time to listen, comment, and support my work. Without you, none of this would be possible. If you've enjoyed this Patio Book, please help me spread the word by leaving me a rating or review on the iTunes Music Store. Leave a comment for me at Patio Books, or just tell your friends about Patio Books so that they can enjoy the hours of entertainment available there. Music is The Hill, composed and produced by Ivan Chu. Find this and other works by Ivan Chu at www.archive.org. You can learn more about the composer and his works by visiting his blog at myrightbrain.wordpress.com. This has been a presentation from Dorandis, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. 
For more information on Tanith Fairport and stories from the Lamas Wood, visit www.lamaswood.com. And thank you all once more for taking the time to listen. <laughs>